Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 877. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you pray with me, please? Father, the scriptures say of themselves that the Bible is the word of Christ. And so when the word goes forth, the voice of Christ goes forth. And we are saying to you, O God, that we need to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need, our soul's need for you to accompany the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ with the regenerating Holy Spirit. We need to be made new. We need to be conformed to Christ's image. And you do that as your Spirit attends the preaching of the Word. So, O God, do that work among us today. We're desperate for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that from the first time I ever heard the story from 1 Samuel 24 of David and Saul in the cave at En Gedi, I've been fascinated by that story as an unfathomable display of mercy. By the time you get to 1 Samuel 24, Saul, who was the king of Israel, had come to hate David. Women from all over Israel coming together to play instruments and sing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, probably didn't help. But by the time you get to 1 Samuel 24, King Saul has tried to pin David to a wall by throwing a spear at him. He's tried to get the Philistines to kill David. Saul has told all his servants to kill David. Saul has tried to sneak up on David to kill him himself. And so David goes on the run from a king who wants him dead. But Saul hated David so much that Saul formed a posse and went after David to kill him. Until one day, as Saul is in hot pursuit of David, nature calls... And King Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, 1 Samuel 24 says. Turns out it's the very same cave where David and his men are hiding, but they're further inside the cave so that Saul doesn't see them. And so you've got the man who's been trying to kill David, 
the man who's keeping David from occupying the throne for which David's been already anointed, and he's right here, right for the picking. And while Saul is handling his affairs, David sneaks up and cuts a corner off of Saul's robe. And after Saul finishes and walks out of the cave, David calls out for Saul and shows him the cut-off corner of his robe to demonstrate that David was in a position to kill him and didn't. Instead, those of you who are familiar with the story already know, David showed mercy to someone who didn't deserve it. Now, to speak of showing mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it is kind of redundant, isn't it? Because you can only show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. If a person deserves the good thing that's being done to him, it's not mercy. Mercy is the good thing that goes to the undeserving. Indeed, mercy is the good thing that goes to those who deserve a bad thing. Like Saul, who received mercy from David. Now that story from 1 Samuel 24 was on my mind because in our text today, it's not David who's distributing mercy, but it's the one to whom David points. The one who's going to be called the son of David by one who's seeking mercy today. And so let me ask you, do you know what kind of people receive mercy In Samuel 24, a bad guy, Saul, received mercy. Does that hold true in our text today? Does that hold true in our world today? What kind of people receive mercy? And how does mercy go about getting distributed? How do you get your hands on some? How do you know if you need it? How do you know if you've received it? Would you like to know the answer to those questions? Our text today has those answers. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 18. Hannah Joy has already read. I think you'll find helpful the sermon outline that you have been provided in your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin, you can find this sermon outline at cmcvermont.org slash gather. And I hope that if you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible app on your phone that you'll... Take one of the pew Bibles near you and follow along in Luke chapter 18, which again can be found on page 877. A theme that keeps running through the gospel of Luke is pride versus humility. And the ugly things that attend pride and the beautiful things that attend humility. That's just sort of a a note that Luke's gospel keeps on hitting. Maybe you recall Mary's song of praise from chapter 1 after she learned that she was pregnant by means of the Holy Spirit with the baby Jesus. The song that Mary sang is called the Magnificat, and it goes like this, a portion of it. He, God, has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. 
I preached from chapter 14 of Luke back in January where Jesus had been invited to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And while Jesus is there, he notices how other guests had jockeyed for position to occupy the places of honor. And Jesus tells them a parable in response about how they all ought to have preferred the less honorable seats. And the Lord ended that parable with this teaching, which should sound familiar to you from the verses that Hannah Joy read. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is all over the place in Luke's gospel. You need only look at the good guys, if I can use that term, in the stories and parables in the gospel of Luke. You've got a Samaritan who shows neighbor love back in chapter 10. You've got a son who comes out of foolish living and out of a pig pen in chapter 15. You've got a leprous Samaritan in chapter 17. You've got a widow in chapter 18. And you've got the king of kings and the son of God whose first bed was an animal feeding trough in chapter 2. All throughout this gospel, God the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke's writing of this book is wanting us to see the blessedness of humility as over against the wickedness of pride. And so, against that whole book backdrop, we get the occasion here in verse 9 for the parable that kicks off our text. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. To those who pridefully trusted in their own self-righteousness and who treated others with contempt because others weren't as holy and righteous as they were. Now the Pharisees, who are going to be represented in this parable, are usually, in Luke's gospel, the objects of Jesus' condemnation for the things that are mentioned here. The Pharisees were, by and large, men who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt for not being righteous. And that's the audience to whom Jesus is directing this parable, the pridefully self-righteous. So the parable begins in verse 10. Two men are at the temple in Jerusalem in this parable, and they're praying. One of the two men is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a sect of Jewish religious life in Jesus' day who prided themselves on taking the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, very seriously and striving to follow the laws in it meticulously. And they believed that they're being physical descendants from Abraham and they believed that they're taking the laws God gave to Moses very seriously, earned them favor and credit before God. That's the Pharisees. The other man in this parable is a tax collector. A Jew who collected taxes for the occupying pagan Roman imperial government. Tax collectors were considered absolute garbage to folks like the Pharisees. Since the tax collectors usually exacted unnecessarily high taxes from their fellow Hebrews and in so doing lined the pockets of the Romans who didn't worship the Lord and who were ruling the Jews in the very land that they believed the Lord had promised to them. So those are our characters. We've got a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they're at the temple to pray. And the Pharisee's prayer begins in verse 11 
with thankfulness, so-called, to God that he's not like all these scummy people around him. Executioners, or extortioners rather, they're kind of one and the same, aren't they? (laughs) Unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Just to remind God what sort of fellow the Lord's hearing from here, the Pharisee rehearses his resume. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes. That's 10%. I give tithes of all that I get. It's the prayer version of the old song, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. (laughs) Uh, There's something kind of comical about a prayer that's this brazenly self-righteous. But the fact of the matter is that from heaven's perspective, this prayer isn't funny at all, is it? It's disgusting. And even if the real-life Pharisees had enough social awareness not to pray this way out loud, Jesus is exposing their hearts with the words of the Pharisee in this parable. Now contrast the Pharisee in his prayer with the tax collector and his prayer in verse 13. The tax collector prays in a position of humility. He's in the temple complex in Jerusalem, but he's in a far-off place. And as he prays, the Bible says he doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's so keenly aware of his unrighteousness and his sinfulness and his unworthiness to be in the Lord's presence and to talk to the Lord. The only sin that's mentioned in the Pharisees' prayer is the sin of other people. The only sin mentioned in the tax collector's prayer is his own. And he beats his breast as a sign of sorrow. And he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His attention isn't on anyone else. He compares himself to no one else. And he prays simply And he prays without eloquence, and he prays without fancy words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives the capper in verse 14. I tell you, that's a phrase that the Lord uses when he means to emphasize something. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector went home justified. Now, what does it mean to be justified in this context? It means to have the great God of heaven declare you to be just, to be righteous in his sight. To be justified is for God to declare you righteous with the righteousness that he requires for entrance into his kingdom. The righteousness that belongs to God's son, Jesus, that comes to sinners by faith alone in Christ alone. To be justified means to be saved. And Jesus said this tax collector went down to his house justified. And take note, the Pharisee didn't. Isn't that what Jesus says? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee went back to his house from the temple unjustified, unrighteous, unsaved, lost, 
hellbound, still in his sin, despite all of his self-assurance that he was better than all those sinners he detested, despite his tithing and despite his fasting. Why? Is it because fasting and tithing are sin? No. It's because the Pharisee was pridefully self-righteous. He thought he was righteous on his own. And so God never declared him righteous with Jesus' righteousness. The tax collector knew he wasn't righteous, and that drove him to cry out to God for mercy. And so God reckoned the tax collector righteous with Jesus' perfect righteousness. Do you see the irony here? The Pharisee prays in verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, Unjust. Do you know another way to translate the word translated unjust there? Unrighteous. That's what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not unrighteous. But what the Pharisee was so pridefully sure he wasn't is exactly what he was. And the tax collector who was absolutely convinced of what he wasn't, righteous, was counted righteous. Because God reckoned the tax collector righteous with Jesus' perfect righteousness. And in the event that this parable's lesson escapes you, Jesus gives it to you clear and straight here at the end of verse 14. For, that little word, for, is the grounding of what Jesus has just said, that the tax collector went home justified instead of the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself as the Pharisee did is going to be humbled. That is, he's going to be humbled eternally at death by being the never-ending object of God's unalloyed wrath in the lake of fire. While those who humble themselves in this life by recognizing their need for God's mercy because of their sinfulness, they will be eternally exalted by living forever with the Lord Jesus in unalloyed joy and pleasure. Let's continue exploring this relationship between spiritual humility and pride in verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So people were bringing their small children to Jesus for him to bless these children. And the disciples saw this and rebuked these folks. We're not told why the disciples did this. Could be that they thought children were unimportant and a bother and a distraction from Jesus' work. But whatever the case, Jesus corrects them. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And lest anyone miss what the Lord meant in verse 16, he says in verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Now, context helps us get at the meaning of these three verses, verses 15 through 17, because we've just been told a parable about how the humble who seek mercy receive it, while the proud who don't think that they need mercy don't receive mercy and don't go home justified. And so Jesus is teaching that those who enter the kingdom of heaven, that is, those who are saved, are those who receive the kingdom like a child with no pretense of deserving entrance into the kingdom, with no thought that they could merit entrance into the kingdom, they come empty-handed, totally helpless, totally dependent. There's nothing that our 17-month-old son Abraham needs that Sarah and I don't give him. Food, Shelter, clothing. He's never merited any of those things from us. He gets them because of our willingness to give those things to him. You know, Abraham doesn't point to some record of accomplishments when he cries out for Cheerios or for a clean diaper. Daddy, let the record show that I made my bed and put my clean clothes away and rolled the trash can to the curb. Now, how's about some applesauce? In fact, if he was trying to merit Sarah's and my favor, there's room for improvement. (laughs) He yells, he goes in his diaper, he hits. No, Abraham brings nothing to the equation except his need and his utter inability to help himself. And he receives from us everything he needs. And that's the, the humble... Now, Don't get the mistaken impression that children exist in some perpetual state of innocence. No. Children are born in sin. They're born in Adam. They're born stained with sin. Even Psalm 51 helps us to see from King David, even from the moment of conception. But the reason Jesus holds up children here is because they have the humble heart attitude of those who enter the kingdom. Jesus is saying that his people receive the kingdom like children by being clear that they bring nothing to God except their lack and their neediness. Kingdom people bring nothing except their need for mercy and they cry out for it and they receive it humbly with an awareness that they could never ever merit it. Kingdom people enter the kingdom aware that in fact all that's on their resume actually are things that God would be just to respond to with wrath and condemnation. That's the heart attitude of kingdom people. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And that's the only kind of people who enter the kingdom because receiving the kingdom like a child is the only way to receive it. To try and enter the kingdom any other way is to be shut out from the kingdom eternally. Well, smack dab in the middle of our text that provides all these marvelous vignettes about the tight connection between humility and mercy, we have the story of the rich young ruler. That's what RYR means in your sermon outline. Let's pick up the reading at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. We call this fellow the rich young ruler His encounter with Jesus is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. None of them call him the rich young ruler. All three of those Gospels indicate that he was rich. Matthew tells us that he's young. Luke tells us that he's a ruler. And so you put all three accounts together, you get a rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and asks a question that we've already seen in Luke's Gospel. Back in chapter 10, at the beginning of the exchange that includes Jesus' telling of the Good Samaritan parable. The rich young ruler asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to the man's question beginning in verse 19. First, the Lord challenges the man's calling Jesus good teacher because only God is good. Jesus isn't arguing here about his deity or even about the appropriateness of calling him good. Jesus certainly was and is good. He was and is God. It's tough to know exactly what Jesus is getting at with what he says to the rich young ruler in verse 19, but I think with how the episode plays out, a plausible explanation is that the man was sort of lightly flattering Jesus or maybe buttering him up, bestowing on Jesus an honorific that the ruler reveals later that he didn't actually mean because he doesn't end up doing what Jesus tells him to do. In any event, Jesus reminds this man of some of the Ten Commandments as Jesus tells the man what to do to inherit eternal life. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And in verse 21, just like the Pharisee in the parable that we saw earlier, The rich young ruler rests on his spiritual resume. All these I've kept from my youth, he says to Jesus. Jesus, I've been obeying those commandments all my life. And do you hear what the man is claiming by saying that? He's saying, Jesus, if obeying those commandments is what I must do to inherit eternal life, I'm all set. I've been keeping those commandments all my life. Now, first off, no, he hasn't. Now, 
maybe he externally kept the commandments not to have sexual relations with another man's wife or not to kill someone or not to steal, not to lie, to give honor to his parents. Maybe he's managed not to run afoul of those laws externally. But he certainly hasn't kept those commandments because those commandments were never lodged externally. They were always aimed at the heart. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel that the commandment not to commit adultery always meant don't lust for a woman who's not your wife. The commandment not to murder always meant don't be sinfully angry toward your brother. The commandment to honor your father and mother always meant to regard God as holy in your heart and to happily submit to him, and so on and so forth with the other commandments. And so the fact that he would dare claim that he had kept all those commandments from his youth just puts him on par with the prideful, self-righteous Pharisee who would stand at the temple and pray as wickedly as the Pharisee did in verses 11 and 12 above. Where do you get the sense in this story at all that the ruler is to any degree aware of his need of God's mercy? Nowhere. And Jesus knows it. He knows this man's heart, and now everyone else is going to know it too. Because Jesus puts his finger right where this man's heart can be exposed. His possessions. And so Jesus tells him in verse 22 that to inherit eternal life, he still lacked one thing. He must go and sell all that he has and distribute it to the poor, and then he'll have treasure in heaven, and he must come and follow Jesus. But because he was extremely rich, as Luke puts it, Jesus told him the last thing he wanted to hear. And the Bible says in verse 24 that he became very sad at Jesus' word to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. I appreciate cross-referencing Luke's account with Mark's account. Because you mustn't think that Jesus took any pleasure in the exposure of this man's sinful condition. When Mark tells this story in Mark chapter 10, we read, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But the rich young ruler didn't do that. He walked away from Jesus. He did not follow the Lord. Just like the Pharisee, he did not go down to his house justified. And in verses 24 and following, Jesus is going to capitalize on the opportunity that's before him now to teach on riches and the relationship between riches and pride. With a living, breathing object lesson right before everyone's eyes, Jesus remarks on how difficult it is for the rich, that is, those who have wealth, Jesus puts it in verse 24, to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to camp out here for a minute so that you don't misunderstand what we've just heard the Lord say. No one is saved because they're poor. There is no justification by poverty. There's only justification by faith in Christ. And no one goes to hell because they're rich. 
A person goes to hell because he hasn't repented from his sin and believed on Christ. This rich young ruler wouldn't have been saved by selling all that he had and giving to his poor fellow Hebrews. That'd be salvation by works. And the Bible is unmistakably clear. No one is saved by works. If the rich young ruler had obeyed Jesus and sold all that he had and given it away and followed Jesus, all that would have done is provide evidence of the new heart and changed life that God would have mercifully granted him. I want you to be clear on that. But as we're looking today at this inextricable connection between humility and mercy, you have to see that Jesus is teaching that all things being equal, it is harder for a rich person to be saved than a poor person. Why? Because the rich person is more apt to be proud than the poor person. Think about this. A poor person's life in Jesus' day and in our day, a poor person's life gives him more occasion to see that he isn't self-sufficient. A poor person has more occasion to see his lack and to see his need for help and mercy in various ways. And rich people just don't have as much opportunity to see their lack and their need for help and mercy. It's harder for a poor person to regard himself as self-sufficient than it is for the rich person. When you're rich, it's just easier to regard yourself as self-sufficient. Now, before you let yourself off the hook, though, what does rich mean? How much money do you have to make to be considered rich? How high does your net worth have to be? I think practically everyone in this room would have been considered rich in Jesus' day. And practically everyone in this room would be considered rich by much of the rest of the world, even in our day. Because we all have more than one change of clothing and a roof over our heads. And as best as I know, none of you is worried about where your next meal will come from. If you are worried about that, let me know and we'll help you. But the point Jesus is making here in verses 24 and 25 is rich people have a harder time finding themselves in the humble posture that cries out for mercy than the poor do. In fact, for all the reasons we've already said, it's so unlikely that a rich person would enter the kingdom of God that Jesus says you'd sooner see a camel go through the eye of a needle. Now maybe you've heard that there was some gate around Jerusalem called the eye of a needle where people had to get off their camels and bend the camel down to go through this needle gate. There's no evidence of any such thing. And if I were trying to get a camel in Jerusalem and there's a gate where I have to get off and put my camel on his knees right there and another gate right there where I don't have to do any of that, I know which gate I'm going to (laughs) use. So there's no needle gate. Jesus is speaking figuratively here. And after hearing teaching like that, it's no wonder that some of the folks who heard Jesus' teaching asked aloud, then who can be saved? There was a mindset among the Jews in Jesus' day that the presence of wealth meant that you had been especially blessed by God. 
They thought that the wealthy had God's special favor on them. And so hearing Jesus say that being wealthy actually puts you at something of a disadvantage spiritually, the people are asking, well, then who can be saved? If not the rich, then who? And what a marvelous answer Jesus gives. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Yes, it's unlikely, even impossible, for a rich man to enter the kingdom. But God can save the rich. Jesus had wealthy followers. I think of Joseph of Arimathea, in whose brand new tomb Jesus was buried. The Bible says Jesus, uh, Joseph was a rich man and a follower of Jesus, Matthew 27. The very next chapter of Luke that we're going to be in, uh, Luke chapter 19, a rich man, a man who said to be rich, Zacchaeus, is going to have faith in Jesus. So God can save the rich, and in fact, God can save anyone. There's no one too far from him. No one, it's impossible for God to save. It's impossible from man's perspective, of course, but it's possible with God. Now, Peter pipes up at this point to acknowledge that he and the other disciples have done what this rich young ruler was unwilling to do. They've left behind their possessions to follow Jesus. But Jesus responds to Peter in verse 29 and to all the rest who are hearing by reassuring them that to leave everything behind to follow Jesus is actually to lose nothing. Those who because they've been given grace to forsake their own lives for Jesus' sake, or those who, because God has granted them saving mercy and has given them new hearts that desire to follow and obey Jesus, those who've been saved, they live with an ever-readiness to leave everything to follow Jesus. And the Lord makes it clear that no one who's left anything behind for the kingdom of God, house or family, will not receive many times more in this time, in this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. Not because you're saved by leaving everything for Jesus' sake, but rather because when God has saved you by faith in Jesus, you're willing to leave everything behind for Jesus' sake. This passage has over and over again been especially dear to Sarah and me. We haven't forsaken riches to be in the ministry. I was going to be a journalist. Sarah was going to be an elementary school teacher. Neither very lucrative careers. But we did leave behind family. We left behind every member of both our families. Not because we're anything special, but because God had given us new hearts when he saved us. And people with new hearts put God and his mission first. And so we left family for Christ's sake. And Sarah and I over the years have been overwhelmed by the brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas that the Lord has given to us in Memphis where I went to seminary and now here in Vermont to us and to our children. We haven't lost a single thing by following Christ. Add to that that he's promised to give all who are his by faith in the age to come eternal life with the Lord Jesus. And so believer, you give to Jesus everything and you'll never be left holding the bag. Never. 
you will never outgive him of whatever you give. And the rich young ruler stands out right here in the middle of all these verses that we're in today as the antithesis of everything Jesus has been teaching and is going to continue to teach about the God-given humility that cries out and receives saving mercy from God. Now, we've been considering throughout this sermon the humility that begets mercy, the humility that gives rise to God's mercy. And the quintessential example is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that right after the story of a man who wouldn't forsake his possessions to follow Jesus, we have Jesus telling the 12 apostles that he's going to forsake even his own life in obedience to his Father. Let's read beginning at verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus' journey that began back in chapter 9 and verse 51, that verse says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That journey that began there is now very near Jerusalem. By the beginning of the next chapter, Jesus is going to be in Jericho, a city just a few miles east of Jerusalem. By the end of the next chapter, Jesus will have arrived in Jerusalem. And the Lord reminds his disciples here in verses 31 to 33 of what's going to happen to him. Rather, verses 31 to 34. In accomplishment, in fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets prophesied would happen to Jesus, the Son of Man, he says he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, the Romans. He's going to be mocked and treated shamefully and spit upon and flogged and killed. Now, you want to talk about humility? Jesus says that the Son of Man... Do you remember how much Jesus prefers this title for himself? Remember what Daniel 7 says about the Son of Man, that he's going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all the peoples and nations and languages will serve him in his everlasting kingdom that won't pass away, that won't be destroyed. The Son of Man, the glorious, eternal, all-sovereign Son of Man is going to be sold out by his own kinsmen, the Hebrews sold out to these pagan Gentile Romans. And he's going to be treated in a way that would get you thrown in prison today if you did it to a stray mangy dog. He's going to be beaten and mocked and spit on and ridiculed and crucified. The Holy One of Israel suffering the treatment of the vilest, low-life criminal. And even worse, he's going to be the suffering, burnt offering for the sins of his people. He's going to be the offering on whom sins are placed. 
the offering whose blood is shed, the offering who bears sins outside the camp, outside of God's presence, away from God's people. He's going to be the object of the Father's righteous wrath, having the floodgates of the Father's wrath toward you, Christian, poured out, not on you, but on the Lord Jesus. And he's going to die. The one who is the resurrection and the life is going to die. The one in whom was life and that life was the light of men, die. The one who had eternally existed, the one who never was not, is going to die on a cross Naked as a spectacle, as the object of scoffing and mocking like a criminal, like a sinner. And this is humility that human language comes up way short in communicating. I can't begin to give words to the depth of humility that the Lord Jesus demonstrated on the cross. But I know that his humility was responded to with mercy. Because in verse 33, Jesus says that after the flogging of the Son of Man and killing Him, on the third day, He'll rise. Because Jesus was willing to be brought low on the cross in fathomless humility, He received resurrection mercy. Paul makes that relationship clear. This relationship that we've been talking about all day, the relationship between humility and mercy, the relationship between Jesus' willingness to die in in humiliation and the Father's merciful exaltation of Him in response. Paul says this in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humble willingness to die on the cross with all that His crucifixion meant was responded to with resurrection mercy. Because Jesus obeyed the Father unto death, the Father raised His Son on the third day. Hallelujah! He's alive! And He's alive as the first recipient of the resurrection mercy that all of us who have faith in Him will receive at His return. And these disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Or at least what it all meant. For his own purposes, God had hidden the import of what Jesus was saying from his followers. And as a result, they didn't grasp what Jesus had said. That'll be obvious after Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24 when Jesus has to teach them what all the events of the cross and resurrection mean and how they've been prophesied throughout the whole of the Scriptures. And with verse 35, we end where we began. 
We began with a parable of the humility that begets mercy. We end with an account of the humility that begets mercy. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And so as Jesus gets ever closer to Jerusalem and to the cross, he comes to Jericho where there's a blind man begging by the side of the road. When Matthew tells this story in Matthew chapter 20, he tells of two blind men. Luke isn't telling a different story or contradicting Matthew's account. For Luke's purposes, telling the story of only one of the two blind men will suffice. Mark tells us what this man's name was, Bartimaeus. The blind man is doing the only thing he can do to survive. He's begging. And on this day, he can tell that a crowd is passing by. So he asks someone, what's this crowd all about? Somebody tells him there's a crowd because Jesus of Nazareth is coming through here. Now, at this point, we're getting near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so there's about three years' worth of miracles and teaching that folks up and down Judea and Samaria and Galilee have been talking about. Jesus has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of onlookers. And again, we're not too far from Jerusalem here. So there's a crowd. But when the blind man, who's apparently learned some things about Jesus, finds out that the hubbub is due to Jesus passing by, he begins to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he cries out so loudly and incessantly that the people in front of him rebuke him. The same thing the disciples do to the people who brought children to Jesus. They tell the blind man, pipe down. But it doesn't work. Because surely this blind man has heard that Jesus has been healing people with all kinds of diseases. He's been casting out demons from people. That's in Luke chapter 4. He's been healing lepers. That's in Luke chapters 5 and 17. He's been making the paralyzed able to walk again. That's in Luke chapter 5. He's been raising people from the dead in Luke chapters 7 and 8. He's calmed the sea in Luke 8. He's fed thousands in Luke 9. He straightened over a stooped woman's back in Luke chapter 13. And much, much more. This blind man knows that Jesus can do for him what he's desperate for Jesus to do. And he doesn't care what kind of spectacle he makes because being desperate for mercy will cause you not to care about what other people think. And so Luke says he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus responds to him the way the Lord always responds to people who desperately cry out to him for mercy. Just like Jesus responded to the tax collector in the parable we saw earlier. 
Jesus hears this blind man over the noise of the crowd, and he stops and calls for him. And he asks the blind man, what would he have Jesus do for him? The blind man offers no pretense, no games, no flattery. Lord, let me recover my sight. And that's just what happens. Jesus says to the one who asks, Lord, let me recover my sight. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, the blind man, verse 43 says, recovered his sight, just as Jesus said. Now I think the rest of verse 43 helps us to understand better what Jesus is saying in verse 42 when the Lord tells the blind man, your faith has made you well. This blind man's faith in Jesus, demonstrated by crying out to Jesus for mercy, that faith both resulted in his physical blindness being healed and in Jesus saving his soul, Jesus healing his greater blindness, the spiritual blindness that really needed the healing, performing the greater miracle and raising this blind man's soul from the dead. And the reason I think we can conclude that Jesus healed this man's physical and spiritual blindness is because of what the blind man does after he's healed. The Bible says he began to follow Jesus. And that's the call, isn't it, that Jesus makes all throughout his ministry and even up to the present day. Follow me. And the formerly blind man follows him, glorifying God along the way. And Luke says that all the people were praising God, too, for what they had seen Jesus do. What a story those people had to tell when they went home, huh? If you don't believe me, ask the blind man. He saw it all. Now, I want to speak to you who are not Christians. And I just want to plead to you very simply to cry out to Jesus for mercy. Some of you who are not Christians are prideful and self-righteous. Some of you don't think you need saving. You look at your life, And you think, you know, I'm better than all the rabble that lives around me. Maybe you see that you're conservative politically and fiscally and socially, not like all these crazy liberals around you, you think. Or maybe you're very tolerant and accepting of people's loves and their lifestyles, live and let live, unlike all these crazy conservatives all around you, you think. You might not be perfect, sure, but you're not so bad, you think. You don't get drunk or abuse drugs or sleep around or cheat on your spouse or cheat on your taxes. All in all, you're really not too bad a person. And I want to say to you that if that's your mindset, that you're a decent person, a good person, that where God is concerned, you're pretty much all set. If that's your mindset, unbeliever, Jesus is saying to you today that you will not go down to your house justified. You are hellbound. You are dead in your sins, spiritually dead, unrighteous, wicked, evil, doing nothing that pleases God and doing nothing that would commend you to God because you can't. And so I call on you. 
If that describes you, to repent from your prideful self-righteousness today and ask God to give you the grace to see yourself for the sinner you are before the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty whose wrath is right now being stored up against you for your sins, waiting for the day when He'll unleash His righteous wrath on you for all eternity. Repent if you think you're all set before God. You aren't. You need mercy. And you'll never receive it until you humble yourself and see yourself for who you really are before God and cry out to Him for mercy as we see in our passage today. But I don't think that's the only kind of unbeliever in the room. Because I think there are some of you who aren't Christians who do know something of your need for mercy. Some of you who are outside of Christ believe the Bible when it tells you that you're not righteous and that you're going to hell. You know you're a sinner. You know that you have nothing to merit God's favor on you. You know that you need to be saved. You know that you're in need for mercy. And to you, I say, cry out to Jesus for mercy. Do you fear that he'll reject you? Did he reject the tax collector who cried out for mercy? No, he went down to his house justified. Did he reject the blind man who cried out for mercy? No, Jesus called for the man and healed him and saved him. And I want to say to you, my dear unbelieving friend, he won't reject you. If you, in humility, plead with God for saving mercy, He will grant it. He will save you because the humility that cries out to Him for mercy is itself a mercy from God. He grants the humility and the mercy. So ask Him for it. Plead with Him for it. When God revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord said of Himself that He's the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear that, fearful unbeliever? The one to whom you plead for mercy is the God who revealed himself to be a God merciful and gracious. He has more mercy than you have sin. So come to him and cry out for mercy. Plead with him to be merciful to you. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think about how to make use of this text, I want to ask you, do you know that the Lord still has mercy toward you? His mercy isn't only something that you receive when you're first born again. Some of you Christians are in a season where your sin is just right in your face. Maybe you arrive here this morning and a sin that you thought you had licked has popped up again. Or maybe you feel like you've repented of a sin a thousand times and you need to repent of it again. And you think, am I ever going to get over this? I want to say to you, brother or sister, that this mercy isn't just for those who need to come into the kingdom. It's for those whom the Lord has already brought in. So do you need mercy today, unbeliever? Your great God and King has it to the full for you. 
See from the scriptures his son suffering on the cross for you. That's mercy. And he has it still for you. He has more mercy than you have sinned too, brother and sister. Second, I want to ask you, dear fellow believer, are you aware of your ongoing need for mercy? The tax collector in the parable prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to say, believer, that's a good prayer for you to pray too. Now, you aren't enslaved to sin anymore. You aren't under sin's dominion anymore. Your primary identity isn't as a sinner anymore now that God has placed you in Christ. But you still sin, don't you? Let me answer it for you. You do. And so it's right for you to cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's going to be right for you to cry out that prayer until Jesus comes back or until he calls you home in death. Are you aware of your ongoing need for mercy? I think a way you can tell whether you're in touch with your ongoing need for mercy, Christian, is your attitude toward those who need mercy. Are you merciful? If you've been saved, you are. Those who've received mercy are merciful. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says in Matthew 5, for they shall receive mercy. People who are aware of their ongoing need for mercy are merciful to their spouses, their children, their family, their brothers and sisters in Christ, those in the world around them. People who are aware of their ongoing need for mercy are quick to forgive. You nursing a grudge today? Are you holding on to a sin or an offense that someone committed against you? Are you not wanting to lay that down because you want justice to be done to that person? Do you look at the world around you or others who are close to you? Do you look down on them with disgust and think that you're better off because they sin differently than you do? Those aren't merciful attitudes. They aren't the attitudes of people who've been the recipients of God's mercy. So Christian, if you're seeing those in your heart, repent. People who've received mercy are merciful. And people who've received mercy live with joy because they know they haven't received from God the judgment and condemnation they deserve. Instead, Jesus got the judgment and condemnation they deserve, and we got the sonship and eternal life and inheritance that Jesus deserved, and that's mercy. Do you rejoice, Christian, because of the mercy that you've been shown? Your God is merciful to sinners. Your God responds to you not with what your sins deserve, but with what they don't deserve. The psalmist says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord! Rejoice, believer, in your merciful God who has shown you mercy by His Son and has sealed that mercy to you by His Spirit. Those who by God's grace have come to see their sin and their need for salvation 
are made humble and they cry out for mercy. And God responds to those who cry out for mercy with mercy. The mercy that comes through the death and resurrection of his dear son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Help us, Father, where we yet need help. Use this word to sanctify us. If we need to be made aware of our need for mercy, would you do it? If we need to be assured that you would be merciful to us, do that work too. And, oh God, help us to be people who respond to those who need mercy with mercy remembering the mercy that we've been shown and our ever-present need for it. Thank you, O God, for being merciful to us through your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.